sharing huge space. Look how fast he's going. Polar opposite to the conditions he won in Lords. Rain soaked Lords. They're getting the last step down. The crowd is roaring. He is going to do it. He's going to smash the time. Downhill racer and our expert here today, Andrew Needling. All right, how's it? How are we doing? Welcome back to the show. This is Moving the Needle podcast. The last episode was a little bit different Q&A. Uh, we got some good response and keep sending those questions. And maybe my next guest will leave me with a question for you guys. But uh, the next guest is someone that I think has taken sort of the bull by the horns he is someone that risked quite a lot and moved away from his home at, at an early age, which we'll get to. I bumped into him in Whistler, and he made that his home. And a lot of people got to know him pretty quickly for these bike park edits, but that led to Rampage invites. And he's become pretty early adopter of content creation, uh, for lack of a better term, influence. I don't think he'll like that, but he'll be able to describe what he does better. But I've got none other than, and I hope I get the name correct, Remy Metallier. And can you just correct me if I'm wrong on the pronunciation? No, that's that's pretty good. Like from listening to your podcast, I knew you were gonna start with, you know, uh, pronunciation check. But you did you did really good. Hey, thanks, man, and uh, welcome to the show. And from what I can gather, we have cross paths. It's sometimes on social media, it's maybe a quick chairlift when we shared stories about our, I think, our both uh, weak arms and arm pump, which I definitely want to ask you about. But you seem to be quite a podcast fan yourself. You seem to listen to a lot. When, like, where does that come from and, and when, where do you listen? Is it on the bike? Is it commuting? Where, do, where does it all come from? Yeah, well, for, first of all, thanks a lot for having me. Um, so the first, the first podcast I've ever listened was actually one of yours um, during the pandemic. No, you, no, you're just saying that. No, 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 I'm serious. Uh, it was. I think it's just when you started it, and it was you know promoted on Pink Bike or, or whatever. And uh, you know, with with the pandemic, like you start to do more stuff by yourself. Like I think I'm a really sociable guy, and I don't really enjoy being alone. Um, but with the pandemic, like you don't don't have much of a choice. So um, I think I started listening a podcast when you know by going biking by myself or, or running by myself or going to the gym alone, and that's uh, that's when I started. And uh, I found it. I mean, I only listen podcasts usually when I'm exercising, and because the type of podcast I listen is usually with athletes, I find it like a pretty good motivation to. Do you know, like pedal a bigger pill on your bike or go running and, and stuff like that. So yeah, it's definitely been fun. Hey, that's cool to hear. And and I've definitely used it to learn a lot and pass the time, be it airplanes and all that. What um what sort of inspiration did you have growing up? You know, you're from France, so is that the French downhillers? Was it yes. ski yeah. was it the ski scene? Because you're also into skiing. Yeah, I mean, both of it. Uh, so I lived, I grew up close to Nice, uh, which is where, you know, Nicolas Vouillot, Fabien Barrel, uh, Julien Camelini, and, you know, later on, Loïc Bruni, Loris Vergier, uh, Thibaut D'Apuela, all those guys are coming from. So the scene for Daniel was really dense. And at the time, I remember I was like probably 1994. That's when Vouillot was, you know, up front. And because he was winning, the sport was really promoted on TV. 
So on national TV, you had the World Cups. And mostly because, you know, French French riders uh, were so good, you know, it was extra extra visibility, I guess, for the sport because a lot of those guys were from, you know, the French Riviera. So even on the newspaper, you'll always see, uh, you know, Nicolas Vouillard won, you know, this World Cup. And a few years later, you'll have uh, Fabien Barrel won this World Cup. So the sport was like really shown on TV and on media at the time. And I've always wanted to do it. Uh, my dad was a mountain biker, very, very, um, you know, pleasure. So, you know, very entry-level mountain biking. And uh, so he's never really wanted me to, to do it. But seeing it on media is definitely what, you know, inspired me to, to want to do it myself. And same for skiing. The ski industry was really big in France. And we had like, you know, a bunch of like, you know, really, really strong skiers. So same idea, the sport was really uh, shown on TV and, and on newspaper and on magazines. So it was extra motivation for me to want to do it. Yeah, it's quite a mainstream sport, I think, and especially in France. You know, a let's call it cycling, you know, with the Tour de France, and that has a huge history. And uh, it's called VTT, right? It's the mountain bike version yes. in French. Yeah. And... Um, yeah, I mean, when you're in, say, South Africa, when I was growing up, I'm a, you know, a little bit older than you, but it was so far from mainstream. Uh, when, when I tried to explain what I did, it, people honestly were like, okay, so you ride a BMX. I said, no, it's a little bit bigger. You know, downhill skiing. Okay, yeah, they can kind of understand downhill skiing, right? I said, okay, so you go down the slopes and it's a time trial. Yeah, yeah okay, we understand. Okay, well, we do that in the summer on the piste, you know? And even then they're like, uh, yeah okay well you're probably telling a story but to coming from france that it must be quite an you know an easier choice for some of the the youngsters and maybe their parents to understand it because it is mainstream you're seeing it on tv you can probably understand maybe you can make a living from that what was what was like your parents support level or understanding i mean i guess your dad wrote so if you were really keen on it he maybe helped yeah it's funny because at school like none of my close friends growing up ever rode a mountain bike. But at the same time, you had so many, so many riders at a high level in addition. But within my community, no one was riding. So whereas when you come to Canada, at the time, like the racing level was not there. But everybody was used to see mountain biking. Because you'll see like, you know, the bus in the city commuting with bikes, with mountain bikes on the front of the bus to go to the local mountains. So it, it's funny, but like in France, even though the sport appeared to be bigger or like at least more, more known, like the sport of Donil, my experience is that people didn't really know what was a Donil bike and people were still surprised. So yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of been a bit like almost confusing. Like for me, obviously it didn't change anything because I was passionate by the sport. So whereas people you know, knew why it was or not, didn't really change anything of me wanting to do it. But uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty funny how in France you had like either very, very uh, geeky people about the sport, you know, very knowledgeable, very passionate. And then on the other side, people that had no idea what was a mountain bike. So you had like, it was really black and white. And um, when you, so, I mean, you, it, your story is obviously quite widespread and, and your YouTube channel is obviously 
growing and you focus on that, I say growing, it's obviously big. But what I mean by it is like people know that you grew up in France, came over to, to Whistler. I just want to understand the thought process because it makes sense now in hindsight. Oh, what a great move. He's made a career out of mountain biking and, and you've gone through various iterations of it, you know, rampage or are you going to race? But what was the goal when you came over? Maybe a two-part. Like, what was the goal? Was it to be a downhill mountain biker to achieve race success? And then what made you decide, okay, Canada's the place? No, so it, it started totally different. So at the time, I was very passionate uh, mountain biker, obviously. I had discovered, like I had heard of Whistler probably in 2004 and seen, you know, a video of Crankworks and and since that day, I was like, wow, you know, this seems to be the place to visit. It seems to be the best, um, you know, bike park. And um, sorry about the notification, by the way. I thought I had turned it off, uh, but somehow it, uh, it no, came back all, on. Oh, good. Uh, um, so anyway, long story short, I've always wanted to go to Whistler. And then I did a business school with no aspiration whatsoever to become a pro mountain biker. I wanted to work within the bike industry as you know ideally a product manager maybe later a brand manager or something along those lines where i can mix my passion for mountain biking but also you know my knowledge of the business side and and the marketing side and you know basically everything i like and being like well i'm not good enough to be a pro mountain biker but perhaps i can work in the industry with pro mountain bikers to help make and sell you know the best product possible so it was always like the idea I had in mind. Um, but by doing that and by focusing on that in France, I did a special program called apprenticeship where I wasn't able to travel abroad. I had to stay locally in France uh, to finish my studies. And when I finished my studies, I didn't have any experience outside of the country. And to work within those jobs, especially if you're going to work for a big brand, it's important to be well, fluent in English and to have you know, somehow some experience, uh, especially, I guess, in North America uh, within the bike industry. And so I've always wanted to move to Whistler or Vancouver for, you know, six months to one year just to gain some experience, some professional experience, and obviously to ride because, you know, that way I was like, well, I can mix the fun part, which is going to be riding my bike in Whistler and the work part where I can gain experience and I can put on my resume that, you know, I work for six months at this position at, you know, race face or Rocky mountain or whatever, uh, Canadian brands. And also before that, I met, um, a really good friend of mine, Sylvain, which still lives in Vancouver. And at the time he had done two seasons in Whistler and he was not a racer. Um, just like, you know, a rider I was riding with all the time and we had exactly the same level. Like there was no places where he was faster than me and there was no places where I was faster than him. So every time we were riding together, we had like a blast and we're getting along really well. And one day, so he had always told me he was going to go back to, to live to, to BC. And one day he's like, Hey, I just got my uh, application for my uh, visa. And it just got accepted. I'm leaving next month to to leave to Canada, and I was, you know, I was, I was a bit bummed because you know I was my really good friend that I was always riding with, and he goes like, "Well, apply for a visa as soon as you get it. Let me know, and you know, you come and join me and come and pick you up at the airport, and 
And to be honest, like, I don't know if I would have made the move without knowing anybody in BC. So having someone that was going to be able to pick me up at the airport and kind of show me around for the first few days was like a, a huge help. So anyway, long story short, in February 2013, finally got my my visa and I moved to, to Canada. Uh, so moved to Vancouver in the first part, spent a few months there. I worked at uh, Giant Bicycle, which at the time I think was your sponsor. Um, and I was building the bike for the Whistler Bike Park and the plan was to go to the bike park when it opened in May. And so I did all that with, you know, just the only objective to have fun on the bike and meet some people within the industry so I could land a job. And I was really trying really hard to get a job at, you know, Raceface and Rocky Mountain, Norco, but uh, didn't have much success with that. I guess my, my English at the time was even worse uh, than now. So I think it was really a big handicap. And uh, yeah, so I could not really line a, a job. Like, a, a, I mean, a job within the field that I was interested in. And so I ended up writing a lot more that uh, had originally plans, which which wasn't bad. Yeah, I guess I guess it's funny how it works out. But yeah, no, that's that's fair enough because I obviously then bumped into two many years after you first arrived there. So I, it's it's funny how you assume why you came over or how you came over. But that's pretty that's pretty ballsy and pretty cool to say. Well, I've got to go to where the industry is to try get the work and. That is a challenge. I, I do feel very lucky that my first language is English. And a lot of my friends on the circuit um, are English, you know, first language. But um, we've got some very good friends which are not. And it's it's harder, for sure. It is harder. Unfortunately, you guys put in the work to learn a, a foreign language. Um, and I think we should be more understanding of that. And I think the industry is getting better with that. But it unfortunately is the spoken language of English. So that's interesting that that might have been a challenge for you. But it kind of was a blessing if you think about it because forced you to ride the bike park more. And, and that's where these like edits and things have, have come from. So then at, at what point do you start chasing the mountain bike dream then and, and decide, well, I'm not, getting the, I'm not getting the corporate life here? Yeah, so... I started to ride more and more. And, and so my buddy Silva, that I, you know, I, I mean, when I arrived, I first rode the Whistler bike park with him. And the first thing he, he told me was like, follow me. And, you know, it'll take me to a line and that merchants. And he'll show me like the pre-drops from, you know, Brendan Ferclaw in, you know, whatever video. And, you know, the line of Sam Hill and the gaps that Stevie Smith did. And, and he was like, okay, this is, this is the line. And he would show me all those lines and he could do some of them. Uh, some of them he couldn't. And, you know, right away, he made me understand that, you know, idea of lines. He was like, you're cool if you can do that line, kind of, you know. And uh, it was at the time where, like, Kenny Smith was putting out a lot of edits, and Ian Morrison, a lot of local guys as well. And, like, quickly, I realized that people were talking about lines. You know, it was, it was a thing. It was like, oh, did you see the line that Stevie did? And people were not referring as, like, did you see how fast was TV on the whole track? It was like, did you see this line after the third corner where he gapped over the rock? Like it was, you know, a really specific um, part of the trail. And so I started to go after all those lines because they were all my idols. And I was like, well, imagine if I could do something that Stevie Smith or, you know, Sam Hill or, or Thomas Van Der Ham did. So that'd be like really cool. And little by little, I figured that I, I could do them. 
And then I started to come out with my own lines. And at the same time, there was all those little races uh, called Fat Wednesday, which was basically every Wednesday during the season. And, you know, they were picking up tracks and, you know, 200 to 300 people were racing on the same track. And it was very, very friendly. But at the same time, you had guys like, you know, now Remy Govin, that's, uh, you know, races and World Series. Um, Ian Morrison, that was Stevie Smith's best friend. Um, Chris Kovarik, of course, Claire Bouchard. So you had a lot. Yeah, Kovarik used to do a Cook. few of those in the season. Yeah, they're quite, yeah, they were uh, actually quite competitive, yeah. even though it was meant yeah. to be fun. I mean, I, I owe a lot to Kovarik because I, I learned a lot from his riding and, you know, trying to follow him and stuff. And so little by little, I started to do those races. And with the expectation I had in France, so back in France, I'll do like those local races and, you know, I'll get smoked. I'll get, you know, 30th, 40th, sometime 20th. And um, and I did the first race and I, I was feeling better on the bike and, and faster than I used to. And little by little, I could really see progress because it's easy to measure. Like first race, Chris Kovarik is 10 seconds faster. The second race is eight seconds faster and the third one is six seconds faster and so you can it's really easy to see the progress and so i really enjoy I also you do nine races in in three months so it's it's quite a lot when you think about it and so yeah i've been doing that a lot and little by little i went from you know trying to get top 10 to to winning and then you know once you win one you're like well i've won once i, I can win again and so uh, i think that really gave me confidence boost and it's i mean i think a lot of it has to do with confidence even you know when you guys do workups like if you are confident on your bike you, you ride better if you're unconfident and if you start doubting yourself you, you just you just don't perform and so anyway i've started to do that and then i had the opportunity to do following those lines like the world was um starting to go that you know i could do a few gaps that some people hadn't done before and I started to be in touch with a couple of filmers and I did two very like amateur videos and, but they released super late. They released like in November and you know how it is to negotiate deals. Usually you start, you know, super early, like July, August, and everything is lined up, hopefully in September. But at my level at the time. In a perfect world. Yeah. That's nice. The nice yeah. way of doing it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's on paper. It's, it's never the case, but, um, at the time, because I was nobody, um, you know, none of this mattered. But I still knew that, you know, if I wanted to send a resume to get, I mean, at the time, I was hoping to get 40% off on the bike. I wasn't hoping to get like a salary or anything. I didn't think I deserved any of that. So I just wanted like a, a shop deal. Um, but the video came out super late. And I came back in France in November and I, I ended up uh, breaking my. Uh, my thumb and so i could not ride anyway for you know three months and i think i got really lucky with that because instead of taking you know a deal just to just to have a bike and be able to ride as soon as i could because i was injured i was i was in no rush and so i really took my time and i think that led me to have the two video like you know really blew up on on pink bike and then that allowed me to you know have uh, later opportunities so you know race face and commensal and all this came super late i think it came in january or february and i was in no rush because i could not ride anywhere 
So it turned out it turned out you know pretty good to get injured <laughs> in a way. Yeah, and and fortunately you got to roll with the punches, and you've had a few silver linings like uh, not speaking as good English maybe for, uh, forced you out of working soon, and then. But I mean, it's it's pretty cool. I appreciate you sharing that because it it's like an incremental thing that you've done. It's not like you came over and you went straight in the bike park and you said, "Show me all the gaps." You said, "Okay, well, I would like to do some of those gaps, but I understand like it's above my pay grade right now." you know, maybe one day and then you start doing a few and, and you, you spoke about confidence and it comes up a lot. And I think that comes from, I used to, well, I used the word demonstrated practice. You showed yourself you could do the small gap. Then eventually you did the Stevie gap. And then you obviously have some self-belief like, okay, I've seen myself do these big gaps. These guys are international superstars. So that does help with your confidence and maybe let's call it self-belief. And, and you spoke about it in the races as well, because you know, a lot of youngsters say, well, what do I do to get sponsors or what do I do? I want to be a pro racer. But unfortunately, it like it takes time. It takes steps. And you can't always, sometimes you can jump a step, but normally you have to go up the ladder slowly but surely, you know, and, and be consistent. So it's pretty cool to hear your story because you could look at you now and like all the YouTube followers and, and Instagram and the sponsors and, and we'll get into the business side of it. And you, you're pretty polished off, professional, but it wasn't always like that. It was just some. Um... I tried. So it's funny, but I tried to be. I think at the time I was over, way over professional. So I had like a super detailed sport resume. And in France, for fun, like one of my friends was a filmer. You might have filmed with him, actually, Arthur Mazera. He came on okay. a World Cup with Giants in 2012, I believe, or 2011. And okay. he filmed you guys in uh, Leo Gang. Nice. And uh, I think he just, uh, he had a contact in a giant and he just came in as like, you know, fully amateur, just like, Hey, can I, can I, can I film around the pits and stuff? So anyway, he was, he was really amateur. Uh, he then, he, you know, he then got some jobs in the industry, but at the time before flying to uh, Whistler or before going to Canada for the first time, uh, he wanted to do a video. So we had done like a, essentially a sports, a sports resume video where I was riding, you know, all kind of bikes. So like my, jumper bike my Daniel bike trail bike etc just to have something super professional to show bike shops when i was going to go and ask for you know a bit of support and i think i've always been super professional about that and that, that's you know what i learned at school and that definitely helped me out a ton i felt like i was getting support because because my approach was professional at the time and not because of people knew me or because of what I could do on the bike, purely because I had a very professional approach. And I think that's yeah. that's really helped me my entire career. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I stand behind that. I think that's brilliant insight there. And people like to work with people that put effort in. And to make a professional CV or a, a video CV takes effort. It takes, you know, thought process, planning, execution. Obviously, you've got to ride. You've got to be able to back it up. You know, you can't show someone a CV if you have zero results and zero ability. But I think that's a key thing to be as professional as you can. I was lucky. My late father also helped us with the CVs growing up. And it was always, you know, you want something from them. We would love some support. But, you know, what are you going to try give in return? And, and let's thank them after the season. You do, you know, a written note at that time, not an email. And 
you know, pictures and summary of the results and, and all that. And I do, I think that's awesome that, that you, you've opened up the, the can of worms of you feel sometimes your writing has got you so far, but you try to bring a level of professionalism and maybe that's from the business school. So can you talk a little bit about that? We jump ahead. We jump straight into world of content, uh, YouTube, sponsors, negotiations. Like what, what does that look like? And, and you brought that up to me. So maybe what do you want to expose or share? Well, it, it's funny, but like people, you know, like I do ride a bike professionally, like very, very honestly, I do ride a bike professionally because it pays. Otherwise, I would just ride a bike for fun. Like I made that my full-time job because, because that's, that's my only source of income. So that's why I do it professionally. I obviously I love biking, but otherwise I would just do it for fun and you know would not put myself under so much um you know work with all the sponsored deliverables and all the stuff I do on every single day. Um so a lot of people forget that you know a lot of providers put the effort to get something out of it which is which is money. Of course, like you get the satisfaction of, you know, it's a really good feeling if you go and win a race and, and that's what you should do it in the first place. But then you put yourself under a lot of work and a lot of pressure to keep performing and to be more professional, to bring more value to your sponsors. And, and like the true reason of why people do that is because that's their job and that's how they get paid. And I think like lots of people try to, you know, pictures themselves as you know they don't try really hard and they just focus on the riding but when you have sponsors it's a relationship like you get something because you give something and so that's that's what i've always focused on is try to bring the you know best value for the sponsor in terms of what they're gonna get out of me whether it's you know in terms of image and um, content but also in terms of like how easy it is to work with me and I feel like a lot of riders don't want to talk about it because it's not necessarily the cool part. Of course, it's it's way more fun to be, you know, the fastest dude or the most stylish dude. But if you look at any athlete, like even on a World Cup, and you if you could see the salaries, you'll see that the ones that put, you know, for the same achievements and the same speed on the bike, there is big differences of value and salaries and a lot of it has to do with how professional they appear how much uh, value the sponsor feels they get out of the rider um you know the image uh, like their willingness to provide you know content and be available to you know to go to i don't know a trade show photo shoots product testing um you know how Wilding the rider is to follow the like, guidelines that the sponsor gives. And all this has got like a huge impact on salaries. It's not just your ranking on the race and, and the speed you've got on the bike or the potential you have. There is way more than that. And, and a lot of, you know, riders or people don't, don't really see past this. Yeah, that's a, it's quite a double-edged sword if you're going to speak to the racing part. And I, and I do see, and it started changing sort of late in my career, I think when I was on Trek 2009 and 10, I think that's when Facebook kind of started. And I do remember when you had to turn your 
personal page into a fan page because like if you kept 5,000 uh, friends, yeah. right? It's quite funny. I do remember that. Maybe it was around then. And it was interesting because that was kind of when social media started creeping in, Facebook first. And I, funny enough, did a YouTube video just for fun. Um, it'd be interesting if I'd actually carried it on. But I guess, you know, there's a reason we stop and, and don't start or focus on other things. But it's interesting on the racing side because I want to hear your take. I do agree. You've got to be professional. That's This is maybe good for the listener. Like, it's not just hurtle down the hill and get a podium. You know, then there's interview requests afterwards. Then there's test sessions uh, from the teams. Then there's all sorts of obligations and things that you need to do. And now they're throwing the social media in there. They're saying, well, we want certain amount of posts per week or per month. And then it starts feeling like a little bit less authentic, which I think is a challenge. And I see some riders getting caught doing too much. And I think the results also drop. And they start seeing the the exit, the door exit. Okay, I'll build a YouTube channel because my sponsors like it. But I think mentally, they're not 100% focused on the craft. Uh, what, what do you think to that? Well, yeah, it's uh, it takes a lot of time. Like it, it's, it's really hard to be, I think it would be way easier to, I mean, if you're a racer, if you only focus on like waking up every day, going to the gym, you know, doing like your intervals, everything that your trainer told you to do, eating super healthy, doing your test session. And then, you know, you go to a race and that's all you worry about, making sure you've done all the work to, to be as fast as you can on the bike. That's like, imagine how much work someone that does a YouTube channel, someone that goes out to get like specific clip for social media, someone that's going to do videos for his sponsors, like for the new bike, for the new tires, for the new brakes new suspension all that stuff takes so much time of course it's going to take away from just the pure training that you have on the bike and and it i mean it's very very difficult to do both but then the more successful you are the more money you have to spend and invest into making content and then instead of doing everything yourself you can start to hire people so then, you know, maybe you don't have time to do social media and it takes like an hour a day and you don't like it. Well, then if you're really successful, you can pay someone to do it for you, right? And that's what yeah, like, I know a few, a, a few riders do, right? If you're a privateer and you make very little money and you try to be as fast as you can at the World Cup and in addition, you're trying to keep up with editing your YouTube videos, uh, doing your social media, doing your bike checks, sending into sponsors and stuff. Imagine how much work, stress, and focus it takes from your actual racing. Whereas if you're successful, you just have someone that does it for you. And you literally, you know, maybe you do the bike check, you spend 10 minutes like talking about your bike, but someone is going to edit the video. Someone is going to send it to the media, to the sponsors. Someone is going to manage your social media. Someone's going to manage your YouTube channel. And it's, you know, it's always like that, right? That's that's why the more successful you are, almost the most easy it is to keep on going. And I think it's the same on any sport. Yeah, it's like a snowball effect. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, look at, uh, I mean, any sport, like, isn't, I think it's Sean White at the time, because he was so successful, he had the money to make himself like his own half pipe to practice. Yeah. So he was the only guy at the time that he had his own half pipe. And if you look at um, motocross and supercross, it's the same. The top dudes, they have their own track and they can change the track 
whenever they want. So imagine the advantage they have compared to the guys that finishes 15th that has to go to a public track that doesn't have, you know, all the factory support, doesn't have his own track. Like it's, it's, uh, it's, it's so much harder, right? So it's, it's, it's really a, a kind of a, either a virtuous or a vicious uh, circle. And, uh, but yeah, again, for the racers, it's, it will be incredibly hard to do everything. Yeah, I think sometimes the sponsors need to be aware um, what they hired the rider for. And if they want all the content and social media appearances, the the results could decrease. But then for the rider, if they're committed to racing, then contract negotiations come up. And it's like, okay, you did this on social media. You are likable. You're professional. Oh, the results are slipping. Oh, okay, well, we need results. And then he's focused on the wrong thing. And then the next team won't hire him because first and foremost, if you're racing, you need results. But I hear you, you know, uh, when Masters was open about it, if, if he's, uh, you know, ex- accepting that he's not going to win a World Cup, then if he's there, he's going to do as much as he can for the sponsors. But, you know, he's earned himself that right with uh, results in EWS and his social media following. So it's a super interesting time on the race scene with, like, why people are getting hired and and maybe some guys that could be successful or more successful in the racing or not getting hired. So it's a, it's an evolution. It's, it's really not right or wrong. It's just a big evolution, but you stepped into the content game somewhat earlier than others. Um, some come from racing and then step in there. Some do it the other way. So like, at what point did you say, I'm going to double down and, and just do content? Um, I, so it, when I came to Whistler, so before I had, you know, an Instagram page in France with probably like 40 followers. And uh, when I came to Canada, I, I remember going to a party and I met I met a guy that was doing bike videos and he was telling me like he was going to go to Whistler and we should link up in the summer and try to film something. And he goes like, I'll message you on Instagram or like, what's your Instagram? I'll contact you on Instagram. And I was like, oh, I don't have Instagram because I deleted it because I you know, I, I didn't think that was going to go anywhere. And I realized that everybody was using Instagram in North America. So I jumped on it in, you know, summer 2013. Um, but I, I don't feel I was earlier than anybody else. At the time, like every provider already had it. So I was definitely not one of the first one to, to have it. Um, and in terms of content creation, like I've always done, well, then in 2014, so when I started to, you know, right full time was 2014. Um, I was making four or five videos a year, and they were product videos mostly. So like Camelback has always been a sponsor, and you know they had a new backpack and they wanted me to do a little edit on it. So I was doing that, and then I was doing the same for, you know, the bike brand and something like that. But at the time I was doing five videos a year, six videos a year. I wasn't doing. I, I mean, the quantity of work I was putting compared to now. I was I was a complete slacker until 2018 <laughs> uh, <laughs> because I, I feel like I, I was doing very, very little. I, I, I started to work really hard in 2019, I think. Before then, I was I was writing a lot, but I was not going every day with a purpose to to make content. I think it's really in 2019 that everything changed. When I realized that I was not going to go to Rampage anymore, um, that you know I was not having fun, uh, you know, doing some of the stuff that I was supposed to do. And I was like, 
Okay, I need to make a shift and you know it's gonna be creating content that I need to make it very, very seriously. And so that's that's twenty end of twenty eighteen or twenty nineteen that I started to do that. Twenty nineteen, I think. And what so then what is like what does a day to day look like now then? Then we can understand that and if you fully outsourced your filming have you got a guy like one guy like what does the logistics look like and on this on this side of of okay i'm going full content creation well so i try to be i try to with sponsor i try to make as little deliverables as i can so i can i can i can manage so instead of committing to doing like x amount of videos a year i try to really make I mean, I try to agree to make as little as I can just so I can manage everything. And instead of being asked to do stuff, I can show up to a sponsor and be like, I've got this cool idea. That would be great to, you know, showcase your new product. Are you on board? And and if they are, then I get a budget and I contract a filmer. So anything that's like a sponsored video, I, I contract a filmer. Um, and then for the, you know, weekly stuff I do on YouTube, I work closely with GoPro, but it's mostly stuff that I film on my own. So I'm self-independent. I've got my GoPro and I follow another rider and that's what I call uh, trail previews. And then when it gets a bit more complicated and it's still like a YouTube video, so it's pretty basic filmed in one day. Uh, and I'm with another rider and we, we like session and you know work on like features or lines. I usually contract a filmer. Um, so that way I don't have to edit. And also I can focus on the writing. Like the reason why I started to do that is because the quality is better than I can do myself. Like I'm not a filmer or an editor. So if I contract someone, they'll do a better job than I do. It takes off work off my plate, but also I can focus on the writing. And a lot of the stuff I've, I've been doing is, you know, like really dangerous or, or really hard or both. Uh, and I don't want to be bothered about filming. Like, you know, I want to make sure that I can properly ride the line. Um, and so that's when I started to hire someone. But it's the same than, you know, for Walker Pracer. At first, I didn't, I didn't have enough income to justify paying someone every week to do a video. So it was kind of like just difficult, right? Yeah. Whereas now I'm, I'm more comfortable hiring someone. It's, it's easier for me to just hire someone and not have to deal with the stress and, and be able to do a better job. So then it's, it gets easier for the future. Yeah, I mean that's interesting, but like you say, it's it's you got to start somewhere, and then when you feel you have budget, and and you've obviously from the business side, you're you happy to outsource as we should, and I think everyday people, I say everyday people, people in other industries, I think can benefit from that. I think some of the most successful people, don't, they know they don't have the knowledge or the skill set everywhere, so then they hire people that are experts. Look at any yeah, I think it's. C- any good CEO he's going to hire. And I think even on any level, we hire someone. Yeah. I think you must be aware of what your sort of, not hourly rate or day rate, but is it really worth my time to, you know, even mow the lawn from a small scale? Like if you enjoy it, something you like doing on the Sunday, cool. But if you like, I could have spent that hour or two hours working on my side hustle or working on a proposal to my boss or or like in, in sport, you know, so that's pretty interesting, and and I agree with that that model hundred percent. And you mentioned something there, like if I'm doing something gnarly or tricky, and you're known for these lines, and Squamish has some crazy riding, ridden a little bit there, and I obviously have been out the bike park in Whistler, but you're also quoted as like 
I'm, I take calculated risks or most crashes I've had could have been avoided. You seem to be quite methodical about your riding and your preparation. Well, more than ever. Well, obviously, I, get, I don't get any younger. Um, but I, there's nothing more than I hate than being injured because, you know, riding the bike is, is my passion. But next to that, every single passion I have, which is, you know, skiing, uh, dirt biking, trials riding, all this like required me to be healthy and fit. So if I'm injured, not only I can't walk because I can't ride the bike, I also can do all the stuff I love next to it. So I really, really don't want to get injured. And I, uh, I try to be extremely uh, calculated. The good thing is that when you're a racer, you have to ride the track. There's one track, you have to ride it. And there is one gap. And if it's really dangerous, but it's faster, you have to do it. Whereas me, luckily, when I do those videos, if there's one gap and I don't want to do it because I'm like, you know what? Conditions don't line up. It's pretty slippery today. I just don't feel it. The good thing is that I don't have to do it. Like no one is forcing me to do it. So I'm definitely lucky with that. And in terms of risk management, obviously I'm still pushing and I'm still trying to find like new lines and, and new stuff. And if anything, I, I take more risk now than I used to, but I take, I have, I have the time to take the risk. It's not like, you know, you go like when you race the World Cup and it's like last practice before final and you have 15 minutes to decide if you're going to hit the gap or not. You know, you can't be like, you know what? I don't feel it now. I'll come back on Monday when it's a bit drier. You can't. You have to do it. Whereas me, luckily, if I really want to hit a line and if the condition don't line up, I just come back when, uh, when, when the condition you know, when it's drier, when I feel better, when my bike is properly set up for it. And sometimes it's just little details and people don't see that. But, you know, let's say for, you know, I, I, I ride a trail and I notice that there is a new line that could be done, but I'm riding my light trail bike, you know, with light tires because it's, it's a bike that I pedal. Obviously, I don't have the same level of confidence on these bikes and I will have on my big enduro bike with Daniel casing tire and you know, suspension with more support, right? So if I don't feel it, I'll, I'll just come back the next day with a bike that's more suitable for the gap. And then I'll do the gap and realize that the impact is not as bad as I thought. And then I can, because I'm confident, I can come back with any bike and do it and do it with a, you know, bike that's maybe less appropriate for it. Um, but that's that's where like the risk management and the preparation, I think is is extremely important and and. I, yeah, I just, I just really, really take my time and think about every single uh, aspect before, before doing anything that's you know outside of my comfort zone. And when you w walk away or move away, and maybe this can help some of the listeners. And I've had some questions about, you know, riding steep stuff and and confidence with that. Like, is it? Do you feel it in your gut? Um, is it just something that? It just it makes you walk away and you're good at listening to that and not pushing through it. Like you say, in a World Cup level, sometimes you don't feel too comfortable, but there's there's something on the line or enough people have done it where you sort of say, look, I need to do this. I need to risk. But you're at the point where yeah. you're like, okay, it's in my gut. I just don't feel like I should be doing that. And uh, maybe you can help the listener. Like, should they be listening more to their body and their, their muscles like before a drop, you know, what's, what's nerves. And then what is like, I need to walk away. 
Yeah, I think, I, I mean, you totally should listen your, your your body and your mind more than anything else. Because if you, you know, even if you see a line and your body has done it and you feel like you're technically as good as your body and your friend has done it and you're like, I'm really scared. I don't feel good, but my friend has done it. So technically I can do it because we have similar riding abilities. Uh, I don't think it's a good idea because you you are going to ride tens and you don't don't you don't want to ride tens. Obviously, the first time you you do a new line, a new gap, or whatever it is, you're never as relaxed as you should because it's your first time. You don't have much experience with how the bike is gonna feel on the landing, um, how the takeoff is gonna kick you. But I, I really listen my my mind and my body, and I, I have no issue whatsoever to not do something. And like very often. Very often I've done, I remember like going to the, I went on the North Shore like last year with uh, Johan Bardi and my buddy Steve Van Der Hoek and, and a ton of like shredders. And uh, that was at like huge rock face, like really steep. And I had pulled the gap. I was the first one to, I, I don't think any, anybody's done it since, but you could gap a little bit and me, I managed to gap to essentially the second part of the rock face. And since I don't think anybody's gapped as far down as I did, like to the transition. Um, but that day, when I when I came back like six months later, everybody was expecting me to show off and do it. And I just didn't feel it. Like my ankle was like slightly bothering me. And it, I don't know, it was wet and cold. And I was like, I've done it. Like I, have no, I had no problem whatsoever to not do it. And I, I didn't even write the feature. And everybody wanted me to, to do it. But I didn't feel like it was a smart move. Like... I, I didn't feel as confident as I had done the, the time where I actually jumped it. And I've, I, yeah, I have no problem whatsoever to, to not do things if I don't feel uh, 100%. I, th- I think it comes with age. Um, <laughs> yeah. I think it's a, a, a way of managing the ego. And I think you need to be self-aware. Some people call you scared or me scared. And I'm like, well... You know what do I get paid to do? I get paid to promote my sponsors now. I get paid to try grow the sport. Like I've, I get sucked into riding the dark fist jumps, and I'll be honest, I don't do the ninety footer, and it's been a few years now, and it's kind of a mental thing, but it's not worth the risk for me, and and I think I'll leave it, leave it to the youngsters. But I think you've helped there, like the listener, uh, there'd be you know novice riders that maybe are listening or experienced ones, but. I just think you need to build up to things like no one came out the womb and started running. You know, you got to, got to crawl before you walk. You got to walk before you run. And same for your gaps like that. I think you build like an experience confidence level as well. Like, okay, I've done a similar gap felt like this and you naturally subconscious have that skill set of, okay, well that drop is a little bit bigger, but you know, I do feel what I did on the last one. And I think the everyday rider can definitely you know do that do turns over and over and then they'll be better at most turns do some drops like small ones do them over and over and be aware of what your yeah, body's practice. doing being aware of what your mind's doing you know and another other thing like in uh, like progression comes with with practice like any sports any athlete it's like repetition is what's gonna make you better and when I ride with with some you know with friends and there is like a gap I do. Even if it's scary and I do it once, I never only do it once. I'm going to do it over and over and over until, until I, I feel like I could do it with 
you know, any circumstances where, you know, even if it's a jump and I've done it once, I know that the more I'm going to do it, the better I'm going to jump it. You know, the first time you jump like straight and then because, you know, you're unsure with the speed or you go a bit faster than you should just to make sure you don't case it. Second time, you adjust your speed and third time you start like, you know, putting shape onto the jump. And then I'll force myself to go faster and have to scrub the jump or go slower and pop it. So then when I ride the trail, if I make a little mistake on the corner before, I've built experience and I know that I can still, you know, manage the gap by, you know, pulling really hard. Or if I go really fast because the conditions are better, I know that I don't have to break because I can scrub it. And and all this only comes with, with repetition. And I try to always adapt how I eat a jump once I get comfortable on it. I try to change a little bit the line. Um, I try to take, you know, more speed, less speed. I try to adjust my body position so I can just build like as much experience as I can. So I get more confident on this jump, but also on a, on a different jump, on a different trail. Yeah, I mean, I think people will probably be quite surprised at how thoughtful and methodical you are. You, you know, might be known as, oh, Remy, the guy that does the crazy lines in Whistler and look at his YouTube. He's just doing these steep, horrible lines. Like, he's crazy. I get that all the time. Oh, you're crazy. I'm like, well, I think if you do anything enough, you get comfortable and then you get confident from there and then you can take on anything similar. So that's pretty pretty interesting. But, I mean, it hasn't all come easy mentally i th- i would assume I've, I've made a few wrong assumptions to, today but that's the whole point of the podcast get to know someone a little bit better you tell your story let's we we understand someone from the outside like a sam pilgrim i know him personally people say oh have you seen his youtube channel i'm like yeah and i know him personally it's similar but different so people get like more of an understanding but you when we're texting to line this up you said you know, my World Cup and Rampage failures. But, I mean, you use the word failure. Do you look at it as a failure or just a, a sort of a phase of your riding career? No, like I would not, I would not change. To be honest, I would not change anything to, to like those experiences. I mean, I w- so, sorry, on the World Cup side, I would not change anything. And I'm, you know what, I'm glad it didn't work out because if it had worked out in a way, like maybe I would have been, you know, that guy like chasing the World Cup dreams and, you know, never getting the results that, you know, I'm fully happy with and the support that I'm happy with. You know, if I had like tried really hard and maybe, you know, I start to like get a bit better, but, you know, never to a level where you come to September and you know that you have options for teams, you know, you know that you have the contract you want and you know that you're going to be on the bike you want, etc. Like maybe I could have been the guys that just like always struggle between privateer and like a C team, you know? And so I'm glad it didn't work out because then I would have missed another opportunities. Um, with, with the World Cup, I think the huge mistake I've made, I was very unprepared. Like I don't think people realize, but riding a World Cup track is, is completely different than riding your regular bike park trails or, or shuttle trails. Like, the speed and like how the trail is shaped to me was like it felt like a different sport you know i had in whistler i was always fast on like low risk trails like it's a bike park they don't want people to get hurt so you don't really find section of trail where you go 65 kilometers an hour on some rocks with like trees everywhere there is a ton of trees but the trails are slow 
So if you hit a tree, you hit a tree at 20 kilometers an hour, not at 60. And I think that's a huge um, issue I had. Like I didn't adapt. Like I got there and I was like, well, this is crazy fast. And also with the timing, I, I wasn't prepared to hit like gaps and stuff with such a small amount of time because I, I'm so used to take my time to do a gap. Some of the gap I did in Whistler, to this day, some of them still hasn't been done by anybody. And, and you know that, you know, during crank rocks and stuff, people come from all over the world. You got World Cup riders, you got guys like, you know, Finiles and riding the park like all the time. And, and some of those gaps have never been done by anybody else. But when I did them, I took my time and I did it when it felt right. On the World Cup, I remember in Montsantan, there was like a gap out of a corner, which is, I mean, it was obviously was technically difficult, but even in terms of risk and, and the, the gap itself wasn't that big, but I wasn't, you know, just like the way I approach a gap, I do like run-ins. I do one, two, maybe three, four, sometimes I do 10 run-ins. And like, you can't really do that on a World Cup track during practice because there is rider all the time. And so I felt I was never in a position where I could be relaxed and be like, okay, I'm going to do a, a run in. I'm going to line up, check the speed, and then I'll go and do it again. Like every time I was like, okay, someone's coming. I can't do it. And so I felt like I was never like prepared. Um, and, and the type of track as well was like very different. But the biggest thing is that I had no fun whatsoever. Like all weekend, like I didn't enjoy any of it. Like there was no section of track where I enjoyed it. I think like mentally I wasn't, I wasn't like wanting to enjoy the process of, you know, getting faster lap, lap after lap. And because I didn't enjoy it, like I didn't feel confidence and I just didn't want to ride my bike. Like I, I didn't have fun. And every single time I, I rode well for a video or a gap is because I had fun. Like you never see like any clip of me on any video where the writing is good, where I didn't have fun. If I have fun, I know I can write well. If I don't have fun, like you usually don't see anything because it's, it's not good. <laughs> the writing isn't good. Do you think it's the stress of the whole thing? Or maybe like you say, you were a bit new to it and, and it was like a little bit uncomfortable, the style of track. So it's, it's quite a stressful week, especially if you're not, used to it and how are the weeks going to play out and morning of practice the first day goes yeah. like this and you know someone like me i had years to get used to it and and clearly had a you know raced as a youngster and kind of knew where we were going but for you it's like shit this is uncomfortable and i gotta get ready for it's like a stressful experience isn't it yeah well there's much more to that obviously i wasn't like fitness wise i wasn't where i should have been I don't have the experience and, you know, maybe simply I don't have the speed required, like the natural speed required to, to go really fast on the World Cup track. Um, it's, it's something that, you know, some people are born with it and, and, and some people are not. And I think you can definitely work your way to getting faster and building more confidence at going really fast on a track. It's, it's like anything, the more you do it, the better you're going to get. Um, but I think that's so so little racing experience uh, and so little experience on the bike at this speed on that kind of riding. I, um, yeah, I just didn't, didn't feel good on the bike. Wasn't happy riding the track. Didn't enjoy the track, to be honest. Found it like pretty slippery and tricky. I found it like the gaps 
and like the technical line, I didn't find them rewarding in a way where it's like, because it was not huge. You know, it's not like, or they were not smooth. You know, some of the line in the bike park I could find, the gaps are, some of them are 15 meters long. They're like huge gaps. And the transition is small. But when you land into the transition, it's super smooth. And it's, you know, it feels really good. Whereas some of the lines, like for example, in the rock garden, the gap itself is, it's incredibly difficult. And, you know, as, as you know, like 10 riders in a wall can do it or 15 riders can do it in a wall. But it, it still doesn't seem really cool because it's so hard technically and so high risk. You know, if you land slightly sideways, you go OTB on a rock. And um, yeah, it just, it just didn't feel like something I was excited to, to do anyway. Um, but yeah, the speed as well, like it's, it's something you can't show up at Mont and expect to be fast on the, on your first time. I think like you need to, <laughs> you need to walk, uh, you need to walk to it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I can remember getting there and I'd done okay at some Norbers and, but fitness needs to be on point your confidence it's tough to be confident when you've never been on a track like that or um, you haven't shown yourself in, in front of those guys and then you probably got someone like Greg Menard telling you to get out the way on your when you're trying to do a little run into a drop so it is daunting but I mean anything is is daunting speaking about daunting so you've you've definitely um, made some inroads at, at being invited to Rampage You've had quite some stories with the visa issue. Now, I can speak to that. I've been through enough visa issues in my life. You don't have a South African passport, so I feel your pain for getting denied entry that one time to the USA. I've been through some horrendous things yeah. as well. But, um, yeah, let's uh, let's try to help the listener understand, like, the emotions and, and the challenges of, of Rampage because what a unique event. You know, it's become quite mainstream now, you know, with the coverage and, and people are watching it that definitely don't follow mountain biking other than just that that one event. Yeah, so Rampage, I got invited in 2015. Um, it's following the videos I've done in the bike park. Um, and at the time, they were taking 42 riders, or 40 riders. And, uh, you know, I got the invite, and I was like, in my head, I was like, why do they invite me? Like, I don't deserve to be there. But at the time, it was 42 riders. So, you know, wider spread. And I was like, I look at the invite list and I was like, I guess I'm like very different from everybody. Like the only guys that had like a similar style than me, the only two guys were Brendan Ferklow and Baz von Steinbergen, I believe. Maybe Logan Bingeli, a bit of a similar style, like, you know, trying to go fast and, you know, maybe more comfortable in the steep section. Um, so anyway, I I thought I was not going to go because I was like, you know, I don't deserve to be there. It's pointless. And at the time also, I was making so little money. Making a trip for three weeks in the US and having a brilliant team is really expensive, you know. So I was like, is it worth it for me to spend five to 10,000 US dollars for, you know, getting there and doing like very like a very poor performance. You know, I wasn't confident on what I could do there. Like I was confident I could ride the trails or like ride the line and, you know, do some, you know, decent sized drop and jumps. But I was like, I am not going to send, you know, huge drop with super uncalculated risk just because it's final day and I have to get done. And if I don't do the drop, I can't really ride around it anyway. So I was not going to put myself into that situation. 
So anyway, long story short, uh, at the time I had a girlfriend that uh, was American and she she was like, no, you know, we should go. It's, you know, we're all good. We take the car and yeah, it'll be, it'll be a fun road trip. So anyway, I went there and just before going there, I ended up filming a bike park video, which I think was by far my best bike park video. The one where I lined up like, as many as many gaps as I could, and I hyper extended my leg on the on the landing of a of a gap that I had done hundreds of times. I was doing it all summer long. End of the day, like I landed, hyper extended my leg a little bit, and I think I might have compressed a little bit my menisque. Um, like I didn't get a proper knee injury, but it was enough to be well. I've got to cancel the trip because my knee is swollen, and you know it's really painful. So I won't be able to ride. And so we left it until the really like the morning of going and it was getting a bit better. And I was like, you know what, let's go. And, you know, worst case, I don't ride and just watch the event. So anyway, got there um, and my knee was getting like a bit better every day, but it was, it was a bit difficult to hike up. Uh, fortunately on the bike was okay because by the time you were riding, it was like seven or eight days later. So my knee had time to, to heal up. Um, and I built a line with, you know, whatever was available. So it's difficult on a, it was a second year on that site. Everything was taken. Um, all the cool lines, like all the highest scoring lines were, were taken and you can just show up and be like, Hey, last year you've worked, you know, two teams have worked like six days combined to make that drop. I'm going to go and do it. You can't do that. So you got to go wherever you can kind of. Um, and I found the lines that's, I just didn't like, but that was, you know, what was available. And looking back at it, I have been so disappointed of my riding at every single rampage I went. And I rode four times at rampage. And I've never been slightly happy with my riding. Like every single time, like I look at the video and I'm like, I could have gone so much faster. Like I made so many mistakes. Like was it's bike settings, just like a simple one, but bike settings, I, I made a mistake, like, I mean, three years in a row with, you know, riding the bike was, my bike was not set up the way it should have been. And every single time the common denominator was, I was very unprepared. Showed up to the event with no riding whatsoever before riding my line. And in 2015, I didn't ride anything of Rampage before my line. So like the first thing I've ever ridden was my line. And then in 16, same story, I showed up and only rode my line. I had no warm-up whatsoever on the, you know, King Kong and all those trails where you can build confidence with riding, you know, slow technical trail and steep trails. Or, you know, just go to the old rampage site and do like some big drops. Because, you know, you feel like your bike is set up stiff, but then you go to rampage and it feels like you pull on 40 pounds. Like the bike feels incredibly soft on every single landing. Really? That's what I was going to ask. Is it so you got the setup wrong, but you thought it was stiff enough and it's nowhere near stiff enough? Yeah. Every single time I'm like, well, that should be fine. Like it's so stiff. Like there's no <laughs> yeah. way I can bottom out the bike. Yeah. And then you look at the drop and, and it's not, it, it doesn't look that big, but then you land and you just bruise through the travel. Also, all my bikes going there except the first year but the first commensal bike um like the first the first ip that they made and the cube i had were extremely linear bike so it was really tough to set up the bike away where it was 
working well on those big impacts. Um, now I feel a bit um, upset because the propane I have is I feel like for my style of riding, like the ideal bike for Rampage because it's extremely progressive and it ramps up like the support you get on the mid to hand stroke is, is amazing. So I feel like finally I had a bike that can perform on like the steep loose downhill and also be safe on the big drops. <laughs> but yeah, all this, all this came because I was, I didn't have the experience, like the times that you need to put there to, to get like really confident and really comfortable on, on riding that terrain, just, just in terms of bike setups, like going onto a drop and knowing that you're going to like bottom out insanely hard at the landing. It's just not a good feeling. And, um, so anyway, every single year I've done the same mistake. And now I feel like now I've built enough experience to not do the mistake anymore, but not invited anymore. So. <laughs> would you would you go or do you think you're at the point now that we mentioned earlier, like it's not maybe worth the risk? Like what am I going to get out of it? My sponsors are supporting me the way I am now? Yeah, no, I'll, uh, I'll 100% would love to go, but I will not want to take the spot of someone more deserving than me. Like I've already gone. I've already used it for, it's already helped me a ton for my career. Um, but I would love to go back and ride the terrain. The issue that comes with that is that, you know, you go there for, you need to go there for, if you're going to build a line by yourself, you need to be there for a month. All those videos you see of guys that's been putting like a cool edit, they spend a month on there and they spend, you know, between the filmer and the, Airbnb and having some help with a builder and renting a car, you spend an insane amount of money and I just don't think it's worth it for my career. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you got to weigh it up. That's similar when I, you know, moved away from downhill, I probably had another year or two and I think the speed was there, but it's not worth it. What am I going to pay for myself as a privateer for a year to then get a factory ride for one or two years? You know, you spend all that money. So you know, sometimes you got to weigh it up. There's a cost analysis as well. And this riding, riding is still a business. You know, I probably would have done that like four years ago, but now I'm in a setup where I love being at home. I've got all my friends, you know, the skis, the moto, everything I love to do. And being away for that long from the house, like it's just not something I'm looking forward to anymore. Um, but yeah, I would love to go back and ride the terrain like that. I feel like, now in terms of experience with also I, i'm a better rider now than i was five years ago that's you know i still don't do tricks and i still would not want to do a big backflip step down or, or something like that but i've got a way better breaking technique like i'm i'm better at breaking than i used to do just because i practiced it more um now i became really confident on double drops and I remember Rampage 2018, I had never done a double drop of my life. It was like a super slow running. You drop onto a lily pad and drop again. So you essentially, you're on the brakes, you let go, drop, the bike compresses, and you right away do another drop. And because it's Rampage, everything is oversized. And at the time, I was like, I didn't have the experience. Like, I didn't know how the bike was going to react. You know, I knew I could do it, but I'd never done it. Whereas now... You know, I've done that a lot. And I'm like, I literally could build something twice as big and be completely fine and confident to do it. But at the time, I, I'd never done it. Whereas you take the other guys, like a guy like Seminox built, obviously is, you know, another level of skills and experience and technique, but he got there also because he practiced it. 
And so when he shows up to Rampage and build a double drop, he's already practiced on the double drop before. He knows how it's going to feel, even though it's not the exact same setup. He, he's built that experience. And I feel like now I'm at a point where I've got that experience and that knowledge, and I will be able to put on like a way better show than I did in 15, 16, 17, 18. Yeah, I mean, Semenik is just, it's just crazy how good he is. But as you said, he's practiced it. He has grown up in in areas which had crazy riding. And then when he was at the height of his slopestyle, I mean, he had a mimic of a slopestyle course in his garden, right? Maybe the whale tail's not the exact size, but you're getting very comfortable and then you get confident and then you learn new things. So yeah, unfortunately, everything comes from from practice. Um, and yes, maybe they do well at their first rampage, but they've just practiced other stuff, and maybe that experience does shine through, which is which is damn well interesting. So, what do you make of like rampage these days? I get quite scared watching it. I must say. I mean, I guess because we know a lot of the riders, like it just scares me. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, it, it's. I'm more scared watching other riders than riding to course myself. At the end of the day, Rampage, you really push, but you also build the stuff you want to ride. Mm, yeah, and sometimes, you know, right? I mean, you see it everywhere where riders have a plan and they start building something. And then once it's built, they just don't feel doing it. And that happens. Me, I've always been very conservative. I'm like, I'm in the US. Um, of course, I have insurance, but I really don't want to break a femur or worse in Utah because, you know, you're quite far out from from the hospital medical bills it's going to be a nightmare to deal with that even though you got insurance um i'm on you know i'm on a tourist visa the time where i went back in 2018 like it was it was a bit tricky with the visa issues and i was like i cannot afford to get hurt so i've always built very conservative uh i felt i could always have been putting like way bigger drops and way gnarlier lines that I've done. And if you if you look at it, I've never crashed at Rampage. Well then I think you should stay away then. Then definitely don't go yeah. back. Yeah. <laughs> like knock and touch wood. I had one it's funny, but like I took less risk at Rampage than I did in those bike park videos. People don't yeah, really see it. For but... sure, because you're kind of comfortable at home and and working up to it. But I hear you, I the guys the guy's winning. It's definitely calculated risk, but I definitely don't think they were thinking hospital bills and visas. They don't, definitely not as thoughtful as you. So sometimes, you know, you got to switch the brain off, I guess, for some of these things. But it depends what, yeah. what you value, you know. <laughs> if you value your health, then you start thinking about stuff more. Speak, speaking of health, um, I gathered you uh, have got a passion for that as well on the side. In terms of eating, you you plant based some of the time, all the time, and no, um, um, that, yeah. What what are we what are you doing these days on that side? Well, I I don't do that much these days. Um, but uh, no, I I must I I mean I do eat meat still, but I try to limit the quantity of meat I I eat. So I mostly plant based, mostly, but I will buy meat here and there mostly if I go out. Um, just cause I feel like it does, it does help me. Like I'm less tired when I have, when I have meat, but it's mostly for environmental reasons. I just try to limit, uh, my consumption of meat, try to buy, you know, local and, and organic as much as I can. And in terms of fitness, 
I in 2016 I broke my my back. I broke like T6, and um, so that's when I really started to go to gym. Before that, I was doing you know running and road biking and core, you know planks and pull ups, push ups, you know all the classic stuff you can do at home. Um, but I I really started to go to the gym in 2017, and I actually found myself like really enjoying it. Uh, I guess I really like the community at the gym, like the social aspect, and uh, and that was really fun. But that year I I went to the gym way more than I rode my bike, and I didn't actually feel very good on the bike. I felt very strong, but I was not a very good rider because I was not I was going to the gym too much and uh, I was not riding my bike enough. So I was actually less confident on the bike, even though I was stronger. But then when I had to do sprints, I was feeling pretty good. <laughs> but what did you need to do sprints for? You weren't racing, so uh, no, I did. Uh, I did. Um, I did a few races. I did a few urban downhill races. Ah, uh, yes, um, yeah, yeah. Do you like those? I think they so they are so sketchy. But you guys probably they like so, them. They are so like sketchy. Shit. But. Yeah, you know what? It's it's sketchy, but I've always been less scared riding those scores than I have had on Mont Saint Anne because I was like, Mont Saint Anne, you are more likely to make a mistake and crash because you know the rider before you kicked a little rock into that berm you're gonna hit. Whereas on the street, like the terrain doesn't change, you know the stairs stay the same all weekend long unless it's raining, and so there is less variable I find. You could have the unlucky situation like your ex-teammate had Mikana where a, a dog runs down the, the stairs. The dogs in the alleys are pretty sketchy. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, I've Tibon won old lady uh, in sure. 2013. Yeah. And uh, I, I thought I had killed her. And uh, fortunately, she was okay. But uh, there was a miscommunication with the security of the track. They told her to go. And me, I was coming from a step up, step down, which was blind. And so she crossed at the time where I went. And I just, I didn't have my finger on the brakes because I don't really no ride ways. on straight line. I don't, yeah. So just the extra second to extra quarter of a second to get my brakes. And I just t-boned her. Uh, fortunately, she was okay, but I, I felt really bad. I really thought I had killed her for, for a little bit. That's so sketchy. Because um, yeah. she, she hit her head uh, pretty badly. But fortunately, she she was fine. I don't know how, but she she was fine. Yeah, I've never had a situation where a dog gets on my way on a race run. Definitely had people a bit closer than they should have, where you know you got to open your corner a bit more than you want to because someone is like on the inside of the corner. Um, but see those, those races, like I wasn't getting. Well, it depends which one, but I wasn't getting arm pumps nearly as much because. It's stairs and jumps, but in between you ride on pavements, so you you don't ride as tense. You're not like creeping on the bars the entire run. Like on the World Cup track, you don't have many places where you can rest your arms. Whereas on those races, they're usually a bit shorter, and you don't have as much vibrations. It's really hard impact, but for a small amount of time at a time. And so I actually. I actually did pretty well on some of them. Um, I won Taxco, and there's some big players that, that were there, like Bernard Kerr was there, um, you know, Thomas Lavic, Bernardo Cruz, like all the, all the fastest guys there. And I won in 2017, and there was two runs, and they take best time of the two runs. So you have to go fast twice. 
which is which is pretty which is pretty stressful go fast the first one and hope no one goes faster or or you have to do the safety run and then you got to do it again even faster yeah it's an interesting yeah so i did i did the safety run i've done the safety right safety fast run the first time and i was ahead by like two seconds but i was like you know i could hear like bernard Kerr, like you know he said he crashed or something like that someone missed a you know made a mistake and i was like yeah, those guys are gonna go faster on on run two, and so I was the last one to go, and I didn't know the time of the other guys. So on the, I remember on the second run, I was just that weekend. I was extremely confident. Um, it was after I got denied in the US, so I could not go to Rampage, and I felt like I hadn't done much that year, and I felt like I let down all my sponsors from not going to Rampage. So I felt under a lot of pressure to perform, and I remember. Thomas Slavik was telling me, he's like, dude, Bernardo Cruz is by far the fastest one on the on the stairs. And normally I would have been like, oh shit, like Bernard is Bernardo is, is faster than everybody. Like he's gonna win. Because he, he won that race twice before. And uh and the, I remember this time I was in my head, I was like, there is no way he goes faster than I than I am. Like I felt extremely confident and I felt like I was running well. I was running with Kirk McDowell, which I think he got top 20 again at Snowshoe as like a privateer this year. And I remember riding with him and in the stairs, like when he was ahead of me, I, I was faster. And because uh, I was following him and I was like, I can break later than he does and I can carry more speed out of the stairs. And so that really gave me a huge confidence boost. And when on a normal time, my confidence would be really affected by what other people say. So like, you know, if Thomas Slavik which is, you know, probably one of the, or probably the fastest one right now. Uh, if he says, dude, like, Bernardo is the fastest dude on track. I've seen him, like, the line he takes, like, he goes faster than everybody. Normally, I would be like, well, you know, what's the point of me taking any risk because I'm not going to win anyway? Well, this time, I was, like, in a total different mindset, and I really felt like I needed to perform. So when I was on the start, in my head, I was like, if I don't make a mistake, I'm winning. And I won the first, the first, uh, the first run by two seconds. And the second run, I was the last one to go, but I didn't know the times. And actually, no one had beaten my time of the first run. So even if I didn't finish the the second lap, I would still have won the race. And I actually ended up improving my own time by two seconds. And like that, that was the best feeling. But I feel like I've only gotten that mindset, like you know, two or three times racing, you know, where you, you feel like you're going to, you're going to put together a run that's, that's going to win. And I've only done that like a couple of times and every single time, like it's, it's when I rode by far the best. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, it's an intoxicating feeling. It's definitely what we all chased and, and you do chase, but yeah, it comes from that mindset though, like not worrying about what other people are doing, knowing that you can go fast or saying like, I'm going to focus on myself. But yeah, I remember I went to one in Chile, but it was obviously doing like the height of focusing on downhill. So for me, it was, you know, kind of want to be there, but kind of don't want to get hurt. So it's quite a tough place to be when you're worried about that. As you know, you spoke about Rampage. <laughs> We're in Chile and we're testing the course and, you know, they build the course like in the morning before practice, yes, put yeah. some of the obstacles out because they need to street, close the streets. And I remember they built this quite big drop. It was probably like a story drop, 
uh, wooden landing coming from like a story up off this ledge. And there was like a, maybe a inch or two inch pavement sticking up. And I was like, yeah. well, where, wh where's the lip? No, no, we'll bring <laughs> like, we'll bring a piece of wood. I'm like, okay. So we walked the course. I'm like, where's this wood? And then I was probably like moaning a lot, knowing me and worried about safety and stuff, which I still am, even though I don't race World Cups. They bring this triangle piece of wood. And I was like, okay, I can deal with that. Are you going to screw it into the ground? Because what if it moves yeah, or someone it kicks it away? They're like, no, nah, it's fine. It's just there. And I was like, this is actually just insane. But I understand what you said about the yeah. controllables and uncontrollables. Like it just the stairs stay the same. I just hate yeah, I, land, ju I just hate landing on concrete, man. Yeah, no, I know. I actually had um so in twenty eighteen, so I had one tax go the year before. And Valparaiso was like a more physical track, so I know it was less suitable for me. Um because Taxco doesn't have much pedaling. It's just like straight downhill couple of sprints here and there and there's three jumps at the end three super dodge jumpy jumps and i knew that i had an i felt i had an advantage on the other rider because from following other guys you know i'd follow bernardo i'd follow kirk mcdowell i'd follow um you know thomas slavic and i felt like i was faster on the jumps because i could scrub harder and so I could tell on the last bottom part, I was probably making like a second on the three jump because I didn't have to break before the leap because I could scrub it. Um, but Valparaiso is really different, uh, much more pedaling, longer pedaling as well. And so anyway, I was feeling really good on the actual riding section. Um, and they had built, I don't know if you saw the crash of Thomas Slavic in 2019. He had like horrible crash and, he slid out of a little road gap and hit his head and damaged his ankle. But essentially, I've done exactly the same the previous year. And what happened is that in practice, we practice in the morning and it was not super hot yet. And you are coming into that right-hand corner onto the pavement. And so you'll break before your corner, set up for the corner, then really put trust on your tires and bunny up onto that big black piece of wood and then put a, a little road gap. And the gap itself was small, but you know it was pretty blind and, and you were really you were still cornering onto the wood. And I've done that in practice. No one had a crash. Like everybody rode it well. It was an easy feature. It was hard to go fast, but it was easy to ride. And uh, during um, qualification, I went and I I was like, I'm gonna play it safe because to qualify. I just need to pedal fairly hard. I don't need to take any useless risk. So I, you know, I backed it down a little bit. And as soon as I touched the wood, like my bus tire just slid out and I ended up smacking my, my femur onto the wood and somehow I didn't break my femur, but I felt, I felt lucky. And when I was on the ground, so I managed to move out of the track and the next five guys crashed on the same spot. Bernardo Cruz did the same. Everybody was doing the same mistake. And so fortunately, the rest of the guys had like a, a TV on top where they could see the course. And they saw that everybody crashed on the same spot. So they all went slower, obviously. Um, and what happened is that the paint, it was black paint, and it was so hot, the paint was slightly melting onto the wood. And so the grip wasn't there anymore. So you'll touch the wood and just like slid like if it was wet. And, 
yeah, and the following year, Thomas Slavik did exactly the same, and he was probably gonna win, and yeah, smoked himself on that same feature. So it it is gnarly. Yeah, well, then you've just uh, you know you've fought my case for me. That's me never going to another street race again. I think, but um, yeah, I mean maybe we can end off with like your views on content moving forward. Have you thought about what like the next five, 10 years look like, whether you're riding or not, like what's, you know, is YouTube still around? What's, what's after Instagram? Like, you know, these things move so quickly and I guess being a content creator, you might have to think, think ahead. So maybe what does it look like for you the next little bit? And then maybe hypothetically long-term. Um, yeah, that's a good point. I, um, yeah, so the next few years, to be honest, I'd like to continue the same. Like, I feel like I'm on a program where it's sustainable and I can, I can keep riding the way I do, obviously, unless I get like a, a big injury. But if I do that, you know, I would have bigger concerns than uh, the actual work part. Um, yeah, I feel like I can definitely see myself enjoying doing the same uh, for longer. Like the YouTube video, I, I really enjoy doing that because essentially I go and follow my friends or, you know, sometimes rider I don't know, but that I, you know, look up to done trails. And, you know, it's some of the best trail in the world, riding with some of the best riders in the world. So it's something I really enjoy and people seem to really like it. So it's definitely what I want to keep pushing for. Um, and in terms of content, I'd like to, essentially keep i mean in terms of like instagram and stuff essentially keep the same because that's that's what i enjoy doing so like some little clips where i really push myself of course like i'm safe and calculated but where i try to come up with you know the best technique i can or you know a very creative line and i'd like to work more on maybe being like a bit more cinematic uh now with the gopro like the quality of it is it's just so good like i feel like i have an opportunity to provide the same kind of writing, but just improve the quality uh, of the footage just by optimizing the, the product, which is, which is the camera. And uh, where can uh, the, the listener, if they haven't come across your channel, and I think it'll be cool if you link to maybe your favorite bike park edit, I'll, I'll try and remember to put it in the description. Um, and I want to rewatch that, but where, where do they follow you along? Like what's the YouTube channel? What's the Instagram? Yeah, so Instagram is at uh, Remy Metaillé, and uh, YouTube same is uh, just just Remy Metaillé. I have a second channel which is Remy Metaillé Raw, where I just put like unedited content. So it's essentially just POVs of of me, you know, following someone or just riding a cool trail. And and yeah, that's that's where people can find me for the most part, or, or on the trails. If you're upcoming to Squamish, you'll probably see me, uh, you know, riding riding the bike park trails. Yeah, man, if, if you're ever thinking about going to Squamish or, or Whistler, definitely do that. One of my favorite stops of the year. And uh, for the listener, as I said, I launched a different episode series, the last one. So if you want to ask any questions or your thoughts on this episode, I'll try to answer them. So direct message me. Also, reach out to Remy. Um, he's on, on Instagram and, and he was a big fan of the podcast from the beginning. Thanks, I guess to the pandemic, but I guess there's a silver lining and everything. So guys, this was moving the needle podcast. That was Remy Metellier and thanks so much to him. And you guys know what to do. Same as Remy, go check his channel out, subscribe, 
this is a full-time job for him this is a part-time job for me but if you leave a review i'll be stoked i'll read it and thanks for all the support